From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of My Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams, and I'm joined in studio by my friend and co-host, Mitch Whitus. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me again, Mike. You're listening to the Defenders of Capitalism Project and My Capital Idea. Uh, this is where we talk about and explain and preach and proselytize and wax philosophical about all things capitalism, capitalism being the socio-economic system that recognizes and protects individual rights where all property is privately held, the only moral socio-economic system known to man. Uh, we are advocates for laissez-faire capitalism, and today we're going to be talking about capitalism as it applies to a specific federal ABC agency, that of the Food and Drug Administration. I appreciate you bringing this topic to my mind, Mitch. It's a, it's a really interesting one. I think most people are confused about the the whole purpose of the FDA. Um, so let me have you uh, talk a little bit about the background, you know, a little history of the FDA. Um, you know, the FDA has been around for a long time. I think it was officially started called that in the 1930s or something like that, but it, it had precursors before that. But give us some background about the, the Food and Drug Administration. Yeah, I think like you said, Mike, everybody has probably heard of the FDA. We see the labels on our food that tell us calories and nutrition. But I think a lot of us, myself included, don't necessarily know all that the FDA is charged to regulate. So just to give a little bit of background on what the FDA actually does. This is directly from them. The Food and Drug Administration is responsible for protecting the public health by ensuring the safety, efficacy, and security of human and veterinary drugs, biological products, and medical devices, and by ensuring the safety of our nation's food supply, cosmetics, and products that emit radiation. So there you go. Food, cosmetics, and just in case your product emits radiation, they have some jurisdiction there as well. And in addition, the FDA also has responsibility for regulating the manufacturing, marketing, and distribution of tobacco products to protect the public health and to reduce tobacco use by minors. That now, wait a second here. I thought, I thought we had the uh, uh, ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, ABC agency, so there's some overlap, regulatory overlap well, there. Well, yeah, it turns out we have a lot of regulatory overlap. And one interesting thing about the FDA, it regulates about, I think, over a trillion dollars worth of products a year, an oversight of nearly 80% of the U.S. food supply. But of course, we know when it comes to things like beef, that is under the regulatory authority of the USDA. So <laughs> there's a lot of different players here. You know, it's interesting. This is we're still coming out of COVID times. I was looking at just regulatory uh, overlap. There, there are five different federal agencies who actually have input on the regulatory aspect, or regulation of these uh, masks. You know, the the cloth masks, the uh, N95 masks, just the masks that people are wearing. Wow. 
there's five different regulatory agencies who have oversight on you know how masks are manufactured whether they are efficacious uh it's interesting how and they, and they have different standards right i right. mean so when you're talking about the fda versus the usda with regard to beef or atf with regard to alcohol and tobacco uh that's a whole different issue i suppose we're going to focus mainly on the fda though right yeah i think the fda is a really interesting case study and it has authority and is charged in having regulatory regulatory authority by Congress over a lot of different products, as we just discussed. So I think it's a really interesting topic to talk about. And like you also said, Mike, the FDA, it's been around for a while, actually. Um, The FDA, somewhat in its current form, was established in 1906, but it's been around in some form since at least 1848. And its powers today primarily extend from something called the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938. And what prompted that act, it had been stalled in Congress for four or five years. But in 1937, there was this incident, it was called the Elixir Sulfanilamide Poisonings. And say that four times. Yes, right. It's hard to say once. It was essentially a a pharmaceutical company. They were making antibiotics. They had this this substance called elixir sulfonilamide, and they the way that they prepared it was in a way that was toxic to people. So when they started selling it, it killed probably over a hundred people. So the outrage over this incident over other similar incidents that had occurred previously, that prompts Congress to finally pass this stalled bill in 1938. That gives the FDA a lot of its broad authority that we see today. So a little bit of a little bit of background there. And it really it's a huge organization. So its budget in 2021, it was about $6.1 billion. Essentially or as according to the FDA website, it's about $10.01 per American per year. And it includes over 18,000 full-time equivalent employees. So there's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of effort involved in the FDA. And about 46% of the budget is provided by user industry fees. So when you need something to get approved or go through the regulatory process of the FDA, you pay to have that done, and that's where some of this revenue comes from for the FDA. And the rest, of course, is just being given by taxpayer money, Congress. So anyway, a little bit of background there on the FDA for you, Mike. Yeah, that's that's a good background, and it's really useful. I, I think it's interesting to note how long uh, – some incarnation of this regulatory body has been around in America. But I think that that point about it it, uh, taking on its sort of current uh, oversight in 1938 is important. Um, And and I think it's important for people to realize the perspective of regulation generally uh, that I have and that uh, people who are defenders and champions of laissez-faire capitalism have, namely that that there, there's no such proper role 
of the government in intrusion in our lives that way. And, and that's a controversial thing, right? Most people would say we need to have an FDA, FDA and a Food and Drug Administration, someone who's overseen all these different products, the food products, the drug products, all the things that, that uh, private business manufacturers and might be you know, injurious or toxic to us or killers of our, our lives. Um, so that's a good place to start, right? Is here's some background. This is how this agency came about to protect us. My view is that they've done much more damage in killing people or, or, or depriving them of life uh, than they have in terms of protecting, protecting us. And I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. And it's a good point, Mike. There's, there's a lot of debate about the FDA's authority already. There are the arguments that the FDA overregulates, but there's also voices out there who are, who are saying, no, the FDA actually underregulates today. In 2006, there was an Institute of Medicine report. It actually called for more FDA regulatory authority and for more funding to the FDA. It basically said the FDA's regulatory authority is very amorphous. It's unclear in certain areas. We need to make it more clear. We need to broaden its authority in certain areas. So there are arguments out there that the FDA does not have enough power. And then, of course, we do have the arguments, like you said, Mike, that the FDA really just gets in the way of a lot of things. Milton Friedman, I think, was was a voice for that argument. And about four years ago in 2018, there, there was this congressional law passed that allows what's called, quote, right to try. And the idea is that if you're on your deathbed, you, you, the benevolent government overlords allow you the ability and the privilege to try medication that hasn't been fully vetted by the FDA. So it turns out that now a patient will be eligible for a right-to-try drug. If you have a life-threatening disease, you've exhausted approved treatment options, and you're unable to participate in a clinical trial— and, of course, with your informed consent, which that does make sense to me. But now, you know, I, things are so much better, right? Because we have a right to try. We didn't have so a right we, to try so before. So this is, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. Once you're, we've exhausted every other option. And you have now, uh, when you're on your deathbed, that's when you have the freedom to use your own judgment to, and to take something that they think maybe will hurt you, but you get to try it anyway. I mean, this is the, I'm glad you brought it up that way because this is the essential issue. You know, does a person have a right to their own life? And do they have the right to do, you know, not just to try, but to ingest something that they think is going to benefit themselves? Um, or maybe that they don't think is going to benefit themselves. Do, does a person have a right to their own life? Or do they have to ask permission? That's the essential nature of the FDA is, you know, do I live in a free society or do I have to ask for, you You put it succinctly as in you know, the government overlords, but do I have to ask someone to, someone else, use someone else's judgment, someone else's permission for what to do with my life? Well, and, and not to go down too far of a rabbit hole here, Mike, but we've we've seen this argument here in Colorado recently with right to die. Yeah. And recently a a law was passed that allows people 
I, I think you need there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. You need approval of two different doctors or maybe even more. But the idea that if you are dying and there's no other options available to you, can you be prescribed a medicine that will kill you? No. And, you know, in my opinion, I, I don't see a problem with that. I think that... You mean a problem with you deciding to take your own life? Yeah, I think uh, particularly people who are very ill... I, I remember when this bill was being debated, there was so much uproar. You know, there were going to be suicides, you know, all around. Colorado had become a state obsessed with death. Well, it, it turns out that hasn't really happened. I, I think that the medicine has been prescribed a few hundred times, It's and it's not even clear if it was taken at that point. But there is this concern not just from the FDA, but I think from the public at large, eh, we don't really want you to have the right to do these things. It makes us uncomfortable that that you might take your own life or or that you might be trying these new scary drugs that haven't been tested. I think culturally, there's some resistance to that, which is interesting to me. There is, and, 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 and you can see historically where that comes from. Uh, you know, does a person have a right to play God or does an administration or a regulatory agency have a right to play God? If you're taking your own life, does that mean you're exercising authority over your own life as a free citizen or are you playing God? And that, that's, that's partly the controversy on both ends of life, right? Uh, you know, does, does someone have a right to abort a fetus? Does someone have a right to take their own life at the end of their life? Um, in my, my judgment, this is evading the argument of what a free people can and shouldn't do with their own lives, what, what free citizens sh should be able to do with their own lives. The question is, do you own your own life? Uh, or is it owned by the government or your government overlords? Or is it owned by God? Or is it owned by the church? Or is it owned by society generally? Or is it you as an individual, yours, inviolably yours? Do you have sovereignty over your own life? As long as you're not violating the rights of someone else can you do what you want with your body, your mind, your actions, the fruits of your labor? And that is the case for capitalism. Now, it gets more complex when you try to apply it. And many people, most people, see a definite role for the FDA and all the alphabet soup agencies. They want some protections. And it's partly a lack of imagination on their part to, to realize that the protections that they actually do receive in reality from dangerous products come from the marketplace itself and from business people and people who are actually out there innovating, producing newer, better drugs or products. Um, and, and not realizing that, uh, those people generally speaking, the vast majority of those entrepreneurs and scientists who are creating these kinds of products have no interest in trying to kill their customers or, uh, or maim people uh, just for the sake of short-term financial gain. That's the concern, right? Is sometimes people think, well, we don't want this person who's selling a drug, who has the financial incentive to sell this drug to lots of people, to just have their own authority uh, and, and to be able to do that. Because we can't, we as individual citizens can't be scientists in every area of chemistry and, and uh, product product construction. So we got to have somebody protecting us. And this tees up one of my questions for you, Mike. And I think of a story. So 10 years ago, I was president of the college Republicans at CU Boulder during the Romney campaign. 
And I remember we had our little table in the student union. People come up to us and ask questions or just yell at us as happened time to time. <laughs> but I remember the student comes up. There were a few of us at the table and, you know, we have our literature out for Romney and all the local candidates. And he said, well, uh, you know, I understand you guys are for deregulation, but, you know, do you think any regulation is necessary? And I remember all of us at the table were like, well, you know, of course, of course, there's, you know, we, we don't think the FDA needs to go away. So there, you know, the certain um, belief that, as, as you said, well, I mean, this is stuff people are ingesting. This is stuff that can kill people. So it just seems natural that we need a regulatory body to oversee it. it this story just comes to mind because I think it's a, a prevalent thought that, that you know, why would we even talk about whether we need an FDA or not? Yeah, and it's a radical view right now to say, I mean, I put it this way, is it a radical view to say that each individual owns their own life? Well, see, I think when you put it that way, people would say, a lot of people would say absolutely. Absolutely, they do own their own life, or that's a radical view that I... I... Well, no, I think they'd say absolutely, I own my own life. But when you start talking about the implications of that statement, right. that's when people would exactly. start saying that's pretty radical. Exactly. Yeah, and 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 it is in 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 society today to 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 say we should get rid of every single regulatory body at the federal and state level. That's radical. That's but that's what capitalism means. Capitalism means the ability for people to make free choices, trade with each other on a win-win basis, uh, and to realize that there's risk in doing that. There's no guarantee. That you're going to that everything that you're going to ingest in your body is going to be either perfectly safe or perfectly nutritious for you. The question is, whose judgment is it that gets to decide? And again, a free people gets to a free capitalist society means that people, the individuals, get to decide for themselves. Realizing that there's all kinds of innovations that happen in freedom, where you get people who specialize. And they may be specializing in testing products, not by force, not by saying we're going to extract tax money from you or that we're going to make uh, uh, laws that, uh, that decide whether you can or can't ingest things, but that, that are resources. That, 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 and, and it's the same thing with licensing. Should we do away with all government-enforced licensing? Of course we should. But that's a radical view for most people to swallow not realizing that most legitimate industries actually want and benefit from having sta higher standards, having standards that can be met or credentials that can be met, uh, that are private, that are, that are agreed upon by their members who are much more in a position to know what is the science behind it and what, what actually could be a good standard, whether, whether it's regard to occupations or uh, foods, foods and drugs. So, uh, well, there's a great podcast in and of itself, occupational licensing. And actually, there has been some positive developments in the fight against occupational licensing. But to bring us back, well, in my opinion, but to bring no, us back. I agree with you. I agree with you. In fact, I, I would even put a plug out for organizations like uh, the Institute for Justice. Absolutely. You know, the uh, Pacific Legal Foundation. There, there are a number of good legal groups who are making the case regarding in this case like you said with regard to licensing who are saying no this is all this is illegitimate role for government people should be able to decide what they're going to do with their lives and who they're going to trade with and 
you know, obviously if they're putting themselves out and, and fraudulently claiming to be able to do surgery and not being able to do such surgery, then they should be prosecuted there. That's a fraud. That's a, that's a crime. But, uh, there are some really great organizations advocating for, uh, occupational licensee freedom. And as you said, we should get back to the, the issue with regard to the Food and Drug Administration. But I wanted to make the point generally yeah. that uh, someone who's a consistent advocate for freedom and human flourishing will be an advocate for capitalism, which means they will be an advocate for the abolishment of force in society, which means the abolishment of all these regulatory agencies. But we want that's that's you know the philosophical overall overarching viewpoint but we do want to talk more specifically about the FDA because it is I mean it's not that easy for people to see and there are definitely bad products bad people uh, things that threaten us that we we should talk about so that's my question for you Mike and I think I kind of put an elephant out in the room as I was describing the FDA because I talked about in 1937 these elixir sulfonilamide poisonings I'm just going to call them the poisonings now, so I don't have to say that anymore. <laughs> Thank but, Thankfully, you're not asking me to say that. <laughs> but you know, we we have these poisonings, and there were, of course, other examples. You know, 1906 or somewhere thereabouts, Upton Sinclair publishes the Jungle. You know, people are getting their extremities chopped off and meat processing plants, and God knows what people at home are are eating. But thinking about these poisonings specifically, you know, in this situation, the pharmacist wasn't necessarily a bad person putting this together. He just prepared the medicine in such a way that he didn't know it was toxic to people until about a month later, they start getting reports, yeah, this is actually killing people. And so, like I said, over 100 people die because the pharmacist made a legitimate mistake and he wasn't out to be evil. But how do we handle things like that then in your view, Mike? Because I think a lot of people would say, well, that would be the case for the FDA. The FDA could have stepped in and said, hey, you can't prepare your medicine that way. That's going to kill people. Yeah. So how do we live in a world where there wouldn't be an FDA to do that? Well, the, the, the one argument is to just juxtapose it because uh, there are lots of examples since the FDA has been in existence of them not somehow magically protecting us. You know, there have been plenty of examples of products killing people after the FDA. So where, how did the FDA solve that? I mean, how does, can the FDA itself solve fraud or uh, negligence or even innocent people who are just, I mean, the, the example you gave of the pharmacist who uh, put that compound together, there's no guarantee you can have that someone who's seeing a causal relationship, maybe in a medicine or a drug, doesn't necessarily receive or understand the, the other side effects. Now, is it a good practice to have trials and experiments and you know trying it out uh, on animals or or doing some kind of testing that says? And, and I know that would maybe even a whole another controversy where people would say it's not fair to the animals to do this. Um, but but some kind of methodology to say, okay, we want to preserve, protect, enhance human life. I mean, that's one premise that I think most of our listeners would probably agree with. Now, some would not. Uh, but is there a process of trying things out? That's a rational process, right? That's a rational thing to say. We should try this out and make sure we're testing it, trying to figure out. The question is, should that be done by force? And the arbitrary, in my view, the timelines and standards that the FDA imposes upon the business people and scientists who are actually working closely with the materials or should that be done by, you know, 
a free market where people are saying, no, we're, we're trying to have a medicine or a drug that's going to enhance human life. And what is the standard by which we're going to test those things? There's been plenty of examples, like I said, of products coming out under the regime of an FDA that still did those kind of killings. But with the added side horrific results of slowing down innovation, and this is the crucial point that I think people oftentimes miss, did we have improvements in human conditions and life expectancy and drug enhancements, food enhancements, um, agricultural improvements before the FDA. We had massive improvements. In fact, I mean, I would make the argument that from the inception of the U.S. or the Industrial Revolution through the early 1900s, when the FDA really got power, we had massive improvements in health, uh, life expectancy, nutrition, across the board, water purity, all those things were coming well before the FDA and the regulatory regime that we saw in the early 1900s. And now we, those innovations have explicitly, empirically slowed down. So human life, human life expectancies are not growing like they were. In fact, you, know, you may know this, Mitch, that, but we actually have seen a, a regression in terms of human life expectancy. Now, much of that is because of COVID. Yeah, and fentanyl the, as well. Fentanyl, COVID, suicides. Uh, but over the last three or four years, we're actually seeing human beings have a lower life expectancy than they had during the prior time period. But even during the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen a slowing of that improvement. If we had been on the same pace well before any of these alphabet soup agency regulatory bodies uh, really took hold and, and gained power in the 1930s, if we had been on the same pace that we had in terms of life expectancy from, say, 1800 to 1900, we would be living well into our 150s or maybe even approaching uh, the age 200. Now, some people believe that you know, there's a natural uh, limit to human life expectancy. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think there are scientists who debate that about whether human beings can live, you know, longer, greater lives forever. I, I intend to, and I'm doing a good job so far. <laughs> You're a young guy, though. <laughs> Things aren't starting to fall off or fall apart for you yet. <laughs> oh, we're getting close. <laughs> <laughs> but the question is, you know, could we see that continuous improvement? My belief is absolutely. And uh, young people today are, well, all people today are, are not able to see the same kind of improvement because of the FDA, because of the, the uh, massive slowdown and interruption of innovation that's gone on. And, and that's the practical effect. Again, I would point back to the moral, the moral premise being the more important one is, do, does a person have a right to decide what to do with their life in the first place? Should they have to ask permission from the FDA? But, but practically speaking, the, you know, you're giving examples of what do we do in a concrete instance like that? Well, the, the implicit premise that someone has when they ask the question that way is, you know, can't we have guarantees? Why can't we have guarantees? Why can't we live in the Garden of Eden where nothing ever goes wrong, where we don't have to worry about any kind of food that we take into our bodies or, or drug or medicine or any, anything we do? Why can't we live that way? Well, that's not the real world. The real world is there are risks and there are problems. There are, there are diseases. There is nature who is mo for most of human history has been the enemy. 
uh, for human life and th- thriving. And the question is, what is the proper role of the government in relationship to individuals making decisions for themselves? Um, and I, I would further add that the, the FDA has been, because of that slowdown in innovation, has deprived us of life-enhancing food and medicine for decades, and we all now have shorter lives than we should have had in the first place. So what, I, what I've heard people say before is that we know that there's no guarantee. We know even with an FDA, yes, some things are going to slip through the cracks. But isn't it nice to know that there's at least more of a process now a formalized process that's enforced that can help make sure people aren't dying. And and isn't that okay? Maybe we're not having as much innovation, but how many people have to die to have this innovation, right? This In this way, maybe we're slowing down innovation a little bit, but we are forcing food and drugs to go through a formalized process to help protect more people. Not everybody, but protect more people than would have been protected before. But that's that's the the whole point is that more people is not it's false. Fewer people have been protected because because of the fact that these innovations would be saving lives and on balance. Now again, there may not there be maybe some that don't and some that do, but on balance when you have that kind of innovation going, you have more people protected. That's the that's the interesting thing about a free people is and, and it, does, it does somewhat go back to the premise of what's the motivation of people. If, you, if your worldview is that everyone is evil and out to get me, and especially business people who are seeking profit, then you're going to have the view that we need some kind of overlord like the FDA to protect me from them. But that includes a, a logical fallacy. What makes those people who are overlords any different in terms of their motivation with regard to their own personal profit? I mean, the issue of regulatory capture. You know, you have, you have uh, these massive regulatory agencies who are staffed by human beings who are not excluded from that motivation of self-interest. The well, question... Good. Well, I was going to say, and that is a concern, particularly amongst the, you know, quote unquote, big food companies, that they they do have a relationship with the FDA that may be favoring some special treatment towards the big food companies at the expense of others. There is, there is some argument that that's happening. There is some argument for that. And, and the thing is, the question is, what encourages that? What has created that kind of that kind of regulatory capture or environment where, you know, big pharma or big food or big oil or whoever it might be that's big has now an interest in trying to, instead of an interest in, in innovation and uh, greater productivity and, you know, creating products that, that help people thrive, they, their whole motivation turns into self-protection from the regulatory agencies or, or trying to protect themselves. Um, my premise is that, we shouldn't be arguing against big because big isn't necessarily bad. The question is, how did it get big? If you have a pharmaceutical company that's big because they have created enormous value in the marketplace and therefore have been rewarded by uh, economic incentives, prices, so to speak, and, and, uh, and profits that way, that's good. We want to celebrate that and we want to encourage that. 
Um, but we don't want to actually allow them to use the force of government by uh, penetrating and and essentially occupying those same those same regulatory offices that uh, do basically self dealing. I mean, I mean, I think it's amazing. You know, to use to use a name, uh, I think Pfizer is a wonderful company. They're big mostly because of, in my view, mostly because of their business practices and their ability to see pipeline drug makers uh, and and to make good scientific and business decisions. But are they now part of the problem? Certainly they are in the sense that they they're, what is their real market niche now? What is their specialty? Are they great at making drugs? Are they great at testing foods? Are they great at smoothing the path through the FDA? Their market specialty today is they know how to get things done with the FDA. And that isn't necessarily what we want to reward, in my view. Um, and I think, I think I can make a case that you know, that has perverted the incentives. And they are now big partly because they know how to, they know how to uh, work with regulators. And that, that's the case with you know, any, any big industry that's in a mixed economy like this, where it's not, it's not really their fault. It's the environment we've created. We say, you're big and bad, so we want to make sure we have you know, the, not the hen watching the hen house, so to speak. We want to have somebody outside, outside the industry, someone who's independent and supposedly objective and not incentive, incentivized by uh, selfish profit. So we're going to actually have this regulatory agency that now you become part of. I want to go back to the 1937 poisonings of the substance that I'm too tired to say anymore. But we know what happened. That causes the next year this bill to be passed in Congress that strengthens the authority of the FDA. In your view, how would a free society have handled that situation? So pharmacist releases this drug that he really does just want to help people. He improperly prepared it. It was poisonous. It kills over 100 people. What happens in a free society? So a free society recognizes the difference between uh, that guy's intent. If he, if he did have knowledge of, of it being um, injurious to people or killing people, then if he had prior knowledge of that, then he should be prosecuted for crimes. Uh, if he covered it up, he should be prosecuted. But if not, he made an innocent mistake. Now, did people, some people die? Absolutely. Now, what, what happens after the fact? Do, do people who are interested, I don't know what that, that particular substance was trying to uh, solve Some or help. sort of antibiotic. I, yeah, okay. I, yeah. So the guy who's out there trying to make antibiotics, uh, he clearly no longer can compete, right? He's no longer, that, that pharmacist or that drug maker now has a reputation in the marketplace of not having done his homework well enough to, to put something out like that. And so he, as a business venture and as probably an individual, fails in a big way. He no longer can attract capital. He no longer can attract customers or patients. He's, he's punished by the marketplace. And someone else is saying, well, was his premise wrong? Was the idea of having antibiotics wrong? Or did he not get something right? Well, we're going to go back to the drawing board and make a better antibiotic than he did. We're going to maybe be more stringent ourselves in testing it. But we're going to do it based on our standards, our standards by observing some of his mistakes and other maybe participants in the marketplace's mistakes. 
How do we come up with something better? That's where you have that kind of protect, protective nature of the marketplace saying, we got to get better. And we're not going to risk our reputation like he did on making a mistake. To think of a more modern day example, Mike, let's say it's not a careless pharmacist, but let's say we've got a bioterrorist. We're not just talking about killing 100 people. He wants to kill as many Americans as possible. What role, in your view, or, or is there a role in, in any form for government in that situation? Absolutely. I mean, that's when you talk about bioterrorism, terrorism, uh, uh, foreign threats like that, um, our government's job is solely to protect the individual rights, including the right to life of their, of their citizens. The question is, is there an objective threat that can be identified? And if there is, uh, you know, in the case of your bioterrorist, then our government's job is to not only uh, stop them, to, but to eliminate that threat. So wouldn't we need something like an FDA to identify that, you know, I don't know, just let's say Tylenol, bad Tylenol, put some horrible substance in Tylenol, just trying to distribute it. Don't we need some kind of FDA then? If, it's, if this is the role of government, don't we need some government apparatus to help protect people? So that's that's a really good question. Is what and I think that the 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 sense of the FDA before the 1930s, uh, and and probably even before that, uh, was was a proper conception of saying, okay, should we have any chemists uh, or, or biologists on the role uh, dole or you know the payroll of the government? Certainly, in the sense of the Defense Department identifying bioterrorism, I think that's a proper role of government. Um, but when you have, when you have an authority who says you need permission to create these kinds of things, uh, to create these kinds of drugs, create these kinds of uh, uh, food products, that's absolutely not the job of the government. And the question is, you know, do you have an objective process of saying this uh, person or company is a threat to the rights of of uh, our citizens? That's the role. So, and, and, and you could say the same thing with regard. I mean, this, this came up uh, most recently in COVID. Is there a role for a CDC? You know, should there be a Center for Disease Control in the U.S.? I, I actually think there should be. I agree with that. There, yeah. there is a role. But the question is, is that role of a regulatory nature or of a having information and sharing information nature? Um, are they the primary? Are, are we... Are we funding them and creating this? I mean, I call it GGBS. You maybe heard me use this term before, but now most science is done uh, basically through government funding, through universities, grants, government grant-based science is what I call it. GGBS is my little acronym for it. And it's basically now we have a nationalist approach, a very collectivist, nationalist, politicized approach to basic scientific research. And that's a, that's a, that's a pollution of science. When you, when you try to mix uh, the issue of force and politics and law with the issue of basic scientific research, you're going to have the kind of distortions that we have. And the mistakes that were made in COVID just exacerbate, I mean, just magnify that, uh, in my view. Um, so is there a role for the government in protecting rights? Of course there is. That's its sole role. Along with that, that role of protecting rights, is there a proper government function in sharing information about legitimate science, yes, there is, but not necessarily creating that science. So stop me if I'm putting words in your mouth, Mike, but it sounds like 
in your view, FDA as it exists today, illegitimate. Absolutely. But some form, the, the germ that created the FDA, something like that could be a legitimate role of government. Well, the, the as long, and this is why it's so crucial, and people people think it's like splitting hairs or semantics when you talk about the role of government, and, and the continuous may be tired. I mean, people get tired of me talking about individual rights, but that is what should animate the government is protecting individual rights and nothing else. And so if we can have organizations or part of our government that says, okay, this is, this is a subset of the Defense Department in the case of bioterrorism, um, or a subset of the Justice Department that's pure role is to say, okay, we are specialists in regard to protecting individual rights. And that means including the rights of business people to innovate, not to have to ask for permission. The whole idea of regulation, the whole idea of regulatory agencies perverts the crucial American, mostly American innovation itself in politics, and that is, or in law, I should say, and that is the, the idea of you're innocent until you're proven guilty. Regulation turn that, turns that on its head. The assumption is you're guilty, you're going to try to kill people, or you're going to really only seek your profits without regard to what your product does. And so you are, you're the business people, you're the scientists, you people are guilty out there. And you have to prove to come to us, bend down and kneel before us and prove to us that you're innocent and, uh, and then we'll give you, maybe we'll give you permission to go, move forward in, in your venture. And, and that's, that's a perversion of liberty. And, it, and worse than, than that, it's, I mean, practically speaking, it creates the opposite. You actually end up having more, more and more politics and force involved. That's where you end up having big oil, big pharma, big, you know, who are, who are cronious with the government, not necessarily looking out for the, the, what their product does. They are actually end up being more uh, short-term pro- greedy profit seekers through the cronious system versus what you have in a free market. And, and it's unfortunate that most people have uh, an entirely perverted view of what business entrepreneurs, what it takes to create wealth and value uh, such that they actually believe that they're being protected by the use of force. So you know, Mike, how I love to ask for practical advice. So we know today we're living in a world FDA is going to stick around for the foreseeable future in some form. You know, it's hard to fathom in the short term any presidential candidate running on a platform to eliminate the FDA or something like that. Well, but if you can have more and more statesmen, politicians who actually understand the proper role of government using the language of what freedom means and then giving them, them giving us better and better examples of what that freedom looks like and what we should be moving toward. I mean, it is somewhat aspirational. I interrupted your question. Let me, let let me let you finish. Well, just as defenders of capitalism, you know, what do we do to help maybe make a difference? Well, there's there's two things. One is uh, understanding first, understanding the morality of freedom, the morality of individual rights, that, that it's absolutely immoral to try to use force or use 
uh, substitute a government agencies or even my judgment for yours. I need to either persuade you, Mitch, or we don't have a deal. I don't have the I don't have the right. It's immoral for me to use a stick or a gun or any other instrument of force against your mind unless it's in self-defense. But that's that's the crucial argument that people need to understand. That's the first step. And there aren't enough people. There's a growing critical mass, especially amongst economists, who get this on a practical basis. Now, the problem is I'm seeing many, many economists who really do understand this argument practically. They're, they're, they're just seeing so many countless examples of where the government says, here's what our objective is, and then they implement force to meet that objective, and it has the opposite Yeah. You know whether it's a minimum wage or you know in in medicine or in uh, you know our immigration system, which is a joke. Uh, you know whatever you look, wherever you look, you see. Okay, here's what we want to have happen. You know in the school system to have a free and th- thriving citizenry, we need to have an educated populace. Which right. you know who can argue with that? That that makes yeah. sense. That actually is reasonable. But are we getting that? No, we're getting the opposite. Yeah. Our kids are getting dumbed down. They can't meet certain basic standards. They're, they're not thinking for themselves. They're not becoming more uh, free people and independent thinkers. They're getting the opposite results. So there's plenty of, especially economists and observers of reality, who see that you're getting the opposite results with this use of force. But it takes courage to say, to say that out loud. And to say it uh, consistently, not just, okay, the minimum wage, that's, that's not having the, the results that you want, so you got to quit using the force that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people will do that on, in their little corner of the world and say, yeah, uh, this doesn't work. You know, the FDA doesn't work. It's causing the opposite of what you want. Uh, but to say it universally, to, to wax philosophical, if you will, yeah. <laughs> to say it more broadly, that no, there's a principle in, involved here, that force itself is bad. Force is anti-human human mind and anti-human flourishing. That takes courage, and that will take a whole new generation of politicians and leaders, statesmen, hopefully, that will educate the people on that. And and my point would be, I think I'm answering your question. Hopefully, I'm I'm not you know too abstract here, but uh, you have to have first of all people who understand it, both on a practical and moral basis, and then you have to have people who are doing the hard work, which that is happening now, of saying, okay, this is a fact. Force is wrong. You know, mixed economies are wrong. Uh, certainly, socialist centralized planning economies are wrong. They're going to have the wrong practical effect, and they're immoral in the first place. But we're in the soup right now. <laughs> we have the FDA. We have minimum wage. We have all these instruments of force that we have, in one way or another, um, acceded to, have said, yeah, we're, we're okay. We, the people, are okay with our government doing this. We've been voting for them, and they're doing it. They keep doing yeah. it. Here's the soup we're in, and now we, if we realize there's a conflict between that, you know, that's immoral and bad, and it's not getting us where we want to go. So what are we going to do about it? And you have to have people who are saying, okay, practically, here's how you get out of the soup. Here's the time frame. Here's a reasonable time frame and reasonable steps that go from a centralized, controlled situation, statism, to a more free, uh, um, a free political and economic system, and and you do that in every every single field. You, you do that with the FDA. You say, okay, here's how we do away with the FDA. Here's how we. You can call for the abolition of the FDA, and that's right and good and moral and should be done. But you can't just do it tomorrow. It won't happen politically. 
first of all. And it, and it probably isn't even moral to do it that way, to do it immediately. Same thing with regard to Social Security or the minimum wage or any of these other statist socialized systems. What's interesting is that there are some people in Donald Trump's former orbit who actually have started to argue for the dismantling of the administrative state, they called it. You know, unfortunately, these people aren't very good on rule of law or understanding what liberty or a constitution means, but maybe that idea is getting out there a little bit. It is. I wouldn't give a, I wouldn't give much uh, credit to the Trump administration, although, you know, a person who's fact-based should uh, and justice-based should say, okay, this was something that was done that was in the right direction. And, and certainly there were some examples with regard to Trump, the Trump administration, his his example of saying, you know, for every new regulation we have to remove two was sort of a blunt, um, ham-handed way of doing it. Yeah. But that is that is a positive thing to right. say, you know, we want to do away with the regulatory state and we're going to do it incrementally. So for every one you come up with and it gets approved, you got to remove two or else it doesn't get approved. That's a good thing. Um, and, you know, it's more on an academic a fundamental philosophical basis that this change has to occur because those those kinds of changes happen typically at the university abstract level and filter down into all the other other fields including politics before they really uh, gain steam and that is happening uh, in some universities and some uh, you know uh, Eiffel Tower um, environments um, and it's happening in some ways at the Supreme Court level I mean I'm I'm encouraged. I have been on this kind of bandwagon for a long time where there's certain uh, legal rulings that happened, you know, the, they call them deferences, where the, uh, the Supreme Court basically deferred to the administrative state or the regulatory agencies to make, law, make and enforce their own laws. Uh, and I think uh, Justice Gorsuch is probably the best uh, example of someone who's challenging that assumption. And there are definitely some cases that are coming before the Supreme Court where that is being challenged. Now, the question is, you know, how will they decide? Will they decide on a more principled abstract basis and then have that be really far-reaching law? Or will they, you know, carve out little incremental things that, uh, you know, are chipping away at the edges? But there is some, there is some progress there. And there's, like I said, there's progress amongst uh, social scientists who I, you know, I, maybe this is not fair, but I think, you know, who are honest. I think uh, I use the term observers of reality, people who are just honest about their science and saying, here is cause and effect. And here's where we're seeing these, these policies put in place. And they're just not, not working the way they're supposed to. The war on poverty, right? The, mm -hmm. you know, the, those, all those kinds of things, the war on drugs, you know, those, those examples of where you want a certain outcome and it's producing almost the exact opposite of what you're looking for because of the force that's being used and, and the, the terrible misincentives and distortions that happen in human behavior. Uh, but there's progress. There is some progress. And those of us who are, who are uh, advocates for human freedom are, in a sense, I think, reasonably optimistic in the long term that that, that kind of persuasion can happen. And it can happen with regard to the FDA and every other regulatory agency. Well, you've answered all my questions, Mike. You, you took a swing at each one of them. Some of them were kind of curveballs, so I appreciate it. Well, sometimes we get maybe too abstract and don't get into the concretes. I mean, there, there, there's so many examples that we could go into with regard to the FDA and the things that they have prevented 
in ter- or in a sense encourage. I mean, one example. Um, this isn't exactly the FDA, but I mean, cronyism, and I think the FDA is a, is 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 part of the problem with regard to cronyism. I mean, one example I was going to point out was the Theranos. I mean, we saw so many government officials visiting the, the uh, Elizabeth Holmes, I think her name was. Yeah. You know, and, and encouraging her and, and throwing... And, and we're on her board of directors. On her board of directors. So many... That, that to me, is just another example of cronyism where, where was the FDA? Where was the FDA protecting us from that fraud? They weren't there. And, and there was a lot of people who lost millions of dollars. Um, I don't know how much that fraud impacted uh, various people's health, but that's an example of where we had an FDA and it didn't protect us. And I, you know, in my own field, and I use this, you've heard me use this before, Mitch. I mean, the classic example in my own field in, in financial services, you know, the, the equivalent of the FDA is maybe the SEC or the Consumer Finance Board, you know, those kinds of federal bureaucracies that are designed to protect the little guy investor or the investor generally, they've been around for a long time, but they certainly didn't prevent Bernie Madoff. Yeah. You know, where was the SEC with regard to Bernie Madoff? He slipped through their cracks multiple, multiple times. times. Got, got, you know, actually uh, sterling reviews in his, in his audits. And he was per- perpetrating the greatest financial fraud up until that time period. Um, now, a person might say, well, they can't stop everything. Well, that sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> you can't stop all those kinds of, you can't stop every human fraud from being committed, every uh, mistake that's made. You can't. This, this, we're not in the Garden of Eden. The question is, what is the, the kind of system that will encourage long-term thinking, virtuous behavior? And it so happens to be the system that actually allows people to selfishly accumulate and produce for themselves uh, you know, this is again, you know, Adam Smith's sort of characterization of the invisible hand. But it, it so happens that when you allow people that kind of freedom, you have good results. You actually have uh, positive, positive results across the board, and that's what we're here to remind people of, educate people on, and advocate for. Once again, this is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, and my my friend and associate Mitch Whitus. This has been a good topic, Mitch. I think uh, we covered some of it. We did. There's a lot more to talk about. Well, we'll definitely come back and talk about more of more examples of regulatory agencies actually accomplishing the opposite of what people want them to. The FDA is, in conclusion, a killer, not a protector. <laughs> and hopefully people will chew on that some. Thanks again, Mitch, for being here, for suggesting this topic, and for uh, all your help with the program. People should have hope in the capitalist system, and they need to understand it better, need to understand the moral roots of it, so they can advocate for better practical results. We'll sign off at that. This is Michael Williams again for the Defenders of Capitalism Project. 